So if you're just out here thinking it's all about likes and public comments and stuff, you're missing the bulk of the iceberg. You are building reputation in relationships and credibility and trust in ways that are very hard to see at times and very hard to measure, but they're very real. What does it really mean to be a thought leader in B2B? That's what we're here to find out. This is The Notorious Thought Leader, a podcast for B2B marketers who want to generate demand by creating content that builds credibility and thought leadership. In each episode, Aaron Balsa helps demystify thought leadership and uncovers how companies are using thought leadership to generate demand. Let's get started. My guest today is Steve Watt, Director of Market Insights at Seismic. Thanks for being here, Steve. Thanks, Erin. Looking forward to it. So when I first started planning this show, you were one of the first guests who popped to mind for people I wanted to interview. I had been seeing you share insights on LinkedIn, and when I stopped to check out exactly what you do at Seismic as Director of Market Insights, I saw that you help seismic customers build high-impact, buyer-centric, social selling, and client-centric employee advocacy programs, and you lead Seismic's own journey to become the best-in-class, buyer-centric social sellers. So a lot of the advice that you share on LinkedIn really resonates with me, and it also dovetails perfectly with the mission of this podcast, which is to demystify thought leadership and to help B2B marketers learn to create high-value content that helps them build credibility and position their company as a thought leader in the market. So based on that alone, we have a lot to discuss on this episode, and I'm so happy you're here. But to start, I'm going to ask you the same question that I ask every guest who comes on the show. What is thought leadership? You know, that's interesting. And I think we're going to go deep into this in a lot of ways as we go. Let me start by saying what, what thought leadership is not, and then I'll say what it is. What is not is here's why you should buy my product. That's not thought leadership. You know, that's promotions, that's marketing, that's copywriting. And I think there's been a bit of a dumbing down of what thought leadership really is in the broad sense. Like everybody's a thought leader, you know, but so much of what you see out there is just basically, here's why you should buy my product. That's not thought leadership. For me, thought leadership is map making. It's creating new journeys. It's either illuminating destinations that people have not seen before, or it's illuminating entirely different ways to get to destinations that people have seen before. But it's like the difference between the map maker versus the map reader, that the thought leader is the one who is exposing and shining a light on new risks, new opportunities, new destinations, and, and new roads that others have not yet traveled. I think that's really what it comes down to. Gosh, I love that concept about the map maker versus the map reader. Um, and I'm also kind of holding on to one thing you said about you know, we shouldn't keep dumbing down thought leadership. You know, you had mentioned earlier when we talked that the term thought leadership had been cheapened and we shouldn't keep dumbing it down. Can you tell me more about that? Like, why are we cheapening and dumbing down thought leadership? Why are we, and I say we, the royal we, kind of pushing that anyone and everyone could become a thought leader? It's a sexy term, right? Who doesn't want to be a thought leader, right? Sounds great. 
But I think there's a, there's two downsides to that. You know, one is when you, when, you know, what, what is, what is it from? Was it from the Incredibles? So it's like when everyone's special, no one is, you know, like I think if we cheapen the term thought leadership so far that it means everyone is or can be a thought leader, then I think we need a new term. You know, at that point, we need a, we're going to need a new term because I don't believe everyone is or wants to be a thought leader. And, you know, I'll come back to that idea that, that the thought leader creates the new maps, but there are a whole lot of expedition leaders <laughs> who follow existing maps. And that's really critical and get their entourage there safely. That's really critical and help others follow the route. That's really critical. You know, to me, when we treat it like everyone needs to be a map maker, everyone needs to find entirely new destinations and entirely new ways together. I think it gets really confusing. I think it gets really intimidating. I think it scares a lot of people off of being active on LinkedIn and other places because they're like, whoa, I don't think I'm a thought leader. I don't feel like that's me. So if that's what's expected of me, maybe I'm just going to step back and not even try to do this stuff. So I'm kind of throwing a lot here at the wall because honestly, I don't have this fully formed in my own mind. But I, I think that we do thought leadership a disservice and we do people a disservice when we say everyone's a thought leader or everyone ought to be a thought leader or everyone can be a thought leader. I, I prefer to look at it as everyone can be and perhaps ought to be a subject matter expert. Everyone ought to publicly demonstrate subject matter expertise and passion for what they do and who they do it for and why it matters. And to me, that is something that we should all embrace and not kind of intimidate people with this idea that like, oh, you've got to go further and become like a true thought leader. Does that make sense? You know what I mean? On one hand, I'm saying that we're, we're scaring people off of the term, but on the other hand, I'm saying that we're cheapening the term. And I think, I don't think those thoughts are incompatible. I think they work together. It does make sense to me because I'll tell you why from a personal aspect. I have been sharing insights, uh, viewpoints, my own experience and learnings. You know, I've been managing content teams for seven and a half years before I started my business. And I've just shared a lot of lessons learned along the way in attempt to build my own credibility and to help others. And I started having people invite me on podcasts and saying things to me that like, hey, you know, you're a thought leader in the marketing space or in the content marketing space. And immediately I got sweaty and uncomfortable. I don't like to think of myself that way. You know, four years ago, I was actually camera shy. You know, I hated getting up on stage and talking to people. I hated getting on podcasts and webinars. So for me to go from camera shy and stage shy to now people thinking I'm a thought leader is just too much for me to bear. And I don't aspire to be a thought leader, right? So I totally understand when you're saying that's too intimidating for people. I love, you know, trying to share my subject matter expertise to help others. I think that's a very comfortable place for me personally. So I totally understand that. And... The first two guests that I interviewed for this podcast were Ashley Foss from Atlassian and Chris Walker from Refine Labs. You know, and I had said something like, you know, you both have a lot of original thoughts and you're very influential. 
you know, I, I mentioned the word thought leader to them and they both kind of said, oh, like, I don't think of myself as a thought leader. You know, Chris even said, I think of myself as a practitioner, which goes to show that thought leadership, it's a title that o- others will bestow upon you, but it's not necessarily something that everyone wants to be thought of. And that's really makes a lot of sense because we can't have, imagine there's millions of people on LinkedIn. Imagine if we're all trying to be thought leaders and imagine if every industry has thousands of thought leaders. Like you said, we need some new term, like the golden thought leader. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to like bestow them. some wild, stupid term. I got to say though, right? and Ashley is awesome. I know Ashley and it's interesting. It's getting kind of meta, right? Because she writes, about, yeah. she's a thought leader writing about thought leadership, as is Bill Sherman, who if you haven't had him on, you absolutely need him. But I think Chris Walker stands above all of us. Chris Walker is, in my mind, an absolute thought leader. Chris isn't just out there, let's say, he's not just rolling up conventional wisdom or existing wisdom or existing ways to do marketing. And here's the five things you need to do better and so forth. He's changing marketing. He's teaching a generation of marketers to think differently, operate differently, and measure differently. I've learned a a tremendous amount from him, and it changes the way I think about my work. And and to me, Chris is being really humble. I think Chris, like 100%, is a thought leader and one of the absolute best in in the marketing space. But for the rest of us, it might be a, a mountain a little too high to climb. Totally. I totally agree. It's a mountain way too high to climb for many of us. And some others maybe just are being humble or they just don't yeah. like that. Because well, you know what, Aaron? It's not, it's, not, it's not a tag you should give yourself. And that's probably right, where right. it's something that if other people say that about you, you thank them. And right. so I am calling Chris Walker 100% a thought leader and he should say thank you. But it's not something that, that anyone wants to hang around their own neck because it sounds pompous. Yeah. So... You had said something, and I might be, you know, misquoting you, so help me get this right. A little while ago, you were talking about thought leadership or content that helps others see you as a thought leader would be content that helps people see a new destination that they didn't know existed or find a new way to reach that destination. Could you talk a bit more about that and, you know, kind of paint a more clear picture for the listeners? What exactly would that look like? Yeah, I come back to my map maker versus map reader or expedition leader framework that a lot of people are not trying to discover new destinations or even new routes. They're just trying to get better at getting from here to there. You could be running a marketing team and you want to create demand more efficiently and more quickly. You want to increase your your MQLs. You want to increase your conversion rates. You want to reduce your cost per opportunity. All of these things are perfectly valid things that that someone may be a legitimate subject matter expert in doing. But you're not a you're not a thought leader in my mind. If you say like, here's how we've tuned up our marketing automation to be more efficient or more effective, or here's how we run events in a way that builds more demand for our products and services. That's not thought leadership to me. That's like, you're an expert at what you do. And if you're publicly sharing that information, thank you. We'll all learn something from you, but you're not illuminating. You're neither illuminating a new destination nor an entirely new way to get there. You're helping us get incrementally better at what we're already doing. So Chris, for instance, 
is illuminating both a different destination and a different way of getting there, right? That's why I say he's the full-on thought leader. He's talking about a whole different focus on creating demand versus just capturing demand. He's talking about the power of dark social and community and, you know, word of mouth in the modern era. And he's telling us how to measure that through qualitative attribution instead of focused on quantitative. Get halfway into a sentence and lose what I'm saying. But you know what I mean? Like, not just attribution. That's the word that slipped out of my head. It's not just software-driven quantitative attribution. It's qualitative attribution. How did you find out about us? And people are saying, well, I listened to your podcast. I, you know, my friends recommended me. So he's showing us a new destination and he's showing us a new way to get there. To me, that's a thought leader. And someone who says, you know, here's how I've improve the efficiency of our marketing operations by 10% is not a thought leader. They're a subject matter expert. And that's also a compliment, but it's a different compliment in my opinion. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Chris and Refine Labs as an example is that you're not only seeing a company position itself as a thought leader, like Refine Labs is being seen as a thought leader, the brand itself. And Chris is, of course, more so than the brand, right? So when you're thinking about creating content to position a person or a company as a thought leader, do you think it's easier to do that as an individual or easier to do that as a company? That's a great question. The smaller your company, the more one and the same those are. They diverge significantly as you grow, obviously. So Refined Labs is at an interesting place of like 100 people or whatever, where you know, it's not just Chris. There's a lot of smart people there who are building their own thought leadership. And there's others, I would say, who are demonstrating subject matter expertise and following Chris's map. And they do it well. You go up to a thousand person company, and now you've got people serving entirely different industries, you know, doing entirely different jobs across such a wider spectrum. And it's, I, I think it becomes a dual purpose. I think the company needs to demonstrate thought leadership on one level, but individuals within that company can also, and it needs to be aligned, but not duplicate the company, right? So if, if a company, I'll take, take my company, for instance. So Seismic, we're focused on sales enablement and enablement and, you know, right from training and onboarding salespeople and other client facing people right through the delivery of what they do, the measurement of what they do and their advancing careers and success. We as a company ought to be a corporate thought leader in how to do that better. But there's room under that umbrella for people like me to try to become, I would say I am a thought, a subject matter expert today. I sort of aspire to being more of a thought leader, but I'm not gonna try to duplicate the companies. Thing. I'm actually focused on one slice of it. I'm focused on social selling and employee advocacy, which is only one small part of what my company cares about. But I'm digging in deep to be the expert in that piece. And then some of my colleagues are digging in deep to be the experts in other pieces of it. And together, it humanizes and strengthens the company's position. So if you have a like a corporate thought leadership initiative and then you have several people beneath that who are going deep on certain pieces of it. And then beneath that, you have dozens or hundreds of, of subject matter experts. Well, now I think you're in a really strong position. 
God, I love that. That aligns so nicely with what Carrie Hansen said. I'm not sure if you know Carrie. She's the VP of marketing over at Spiro. And I had her on the podcast not long ago. And she was talking about how at her last company, she was able to create a new market category. And one thing that she said that really stood out to me was, once your company has its you know, positioning and point of view, it's up to all the different employees within the company to connect the dots and put it into context based on who they are and who they're speaking to, right? So if you're speaking to the analysts, you're going to connect dots and position it in a certain way. If you're speaking to customers, you're going to connect the dots and position your narrative and your point of view in a different way. And I can give an example, too, for the listeners. So my last job, I worked at the Predictive Index, and we came up with a new discipline called talent optimization. And we had, we, <laughs> royal we, it was not me, but some of our senior team had come up with, you know, they had noticed that there was a gap in the business world. So at the beginning of the year, you know, C-suite comes up with their business strategy, and they come up with the goals that they want to reach. And then there's like a missing piece. What about the talent strategy? So talent optimization was this new discipline for connecting business strategy and talent strategy so that you get your desired business results at the end of the year. And it was a really, you know, new way to, I would say it's a new way to achieve what people have always known. So you were saying there's this two buckets. There's a new destination and a new way to achieve the destination. This is a new way to achieve the destination. And it was really interesting because my, you know, our CEO, Mike Zani, he would go on speaking tours and he would put his spin on it as a CEO and founder of multiple companies. And then me as, you know, head of content marketing and marketing director, I put my spin on talent optimization because my story is never going to be the same as Mike's story. However, I would teach people how to apply talent optimization principles for their content team. So how to use talent optimization to hire the right behavioral fits for your content team. How to use talent optimization principles to improve engagement of your content team employees. Because talent optimization, you can use it company-wide, but it really is applicable for any team or department within an organization. So that's how I was evangelizing the discipline getting awareness for the discipline in a way that made sense and felt authentic to me. Because it felt really, you know, at first, before I started being a LinkedIn creator, kind of hate that term too, but before I started sharing my, you know, advice and opinions on LinkedIn, I would just like share content, you know, what we all complain about and what we tell people not to do. Don't just be lazy. Don't just share a link. Nobody wants that. That's kind of how I started out. And I'm like, oh, this is good content. Let me just share this link to this blog post. And then when I would talk about talent optimization, I would do it in such a broad way that it didn't even feel authentic. So that was eventually how I found my way. I would connect the dots and I would contextualize it within the space of marketing and content marketing. So that's just an example for listeners of how anyone within an organization can contextualize in a way that feels authentic and really helps the company and helps you build your own credibility. I love it. It's a great example. And and I kind of see three layers there, right? If you are right. just duplicating and sharing the company words and saying, hey, everyone, this is what our company does. And hey, everyone, listen to what my CEO just said. Well, you're an advertiser at this point. Right. You went up the level to be the subject matter expert. You took that 
that point of view, that vision, that framework, whatever you want to call it, of the organization, and you applied it to your area of focus in a way that demonstrated subject matter expertise on your part, that you understood both sides of the equation. You understood your company's perspective and what they're bringing, and you also understood your clients and their world, and you were able to bridge those gaps. That, to me, is a, a beautiful example of being a subject matter expert. And then to me, if you then took it further and actually built out, you know, an even more robust way of looking at it and perhaps started to illuminate aspects of that vision that were specific for content and specific for other areas there that went beyond what the company was doing. Now that's when you start getting into the realm of thought leadership, I would say. So like, to me, it's not like, it's not so much a total switch. It's an evolution uh, that you can do nothing. <laughs> you can sort of become a bit of an advertiser. You can become a bit of like an advocate. You can become more of a public subject matter expert. And if you, if you stay there, that's great. <laughs> I, I would love if everyone in my company was a public subject matter expert. Cause you know what? They all are subject matter experts. They all are. And, and they, they show that every day on zoom calls and in meetings and in boardrooms and they are subject matter experts, but most of them are not public subject matter experts. Most of them aren't bringing it out into the public eye like you were doing. So I think it's a nice continuum of really not only developing point of view and expertise and stories and insights, but also learning the new muscle of bringing them into the public eye. Yeah. So at my last job, so I'm still talking about my job a lot. I haven't actually been self-employed that long. So I quit my job at the end of January. I had spent three and a half years at, at PI. And at my last job, I was really doing my best to encourage our employees to share their expertise on LinkedIn. That's where most of our audience is. And that's exactly what you do at Seismic. So I'd love to hear how you go about that. Like, what's the right amount of education, encouragement? How do you go about, you know, trying to inspire and encourage others? Yeah, it's it's tough. And anyone who is doing what I'm doing in their own company no, knows it's tough. It's not a light switch you can flick. You can't just like, hey, we're good at this now. You Also, you can't force it, right? It, I say it's all carrot, no stick. If you're out there mandating that people be active on LinkedIn, you're, that's like culture damage right there. And they're just not going to do it or they're going to do it really poorly to get you off their back. So it has to be all education, inspiration, encouragement, leading by example. I mean, I think, I think that one of the most critical, critical things missing in a lot of firms, if you want your people to be active on LinkedIn, you need executive leadership. You need leadership from the top. And, and that does not mean that every one of your senior executives needs to be active because that's never going to happen. But you need a few of them. And if you don't have at least a few of your most senior leaders doing a couple of things, like one is A, understanding why it matters. B, giving explicit permission within the firm to do this. I choose those words carefully. Explicit permission. There are a lot of people who are fearful of being active on LinkedIn because they're stuck in old mindsets. 
And, and the most critical old mindset is the idea that LinkedIn is a place you go for a new job. You know, so I can't count the number of times people have said to me, oh, this all sounds great, Steve, but if I update my profile, you know, my boss is going to think I'm looking for a new job. Or if I start sharing content on LinkedIn, my company's going to think I'm wasting time and, you know, I should be working. So, I mean, these old mindsets are the death of it all, right? And it, those have to be explicitly addressed at the most senior levels within the organization that you need senior executives very clearly saying, look, LinkedIn is not just a job board. LinkedIn is a giant business forum now. And to the extent that you are comfortable getting out there and showing up and speaking up, we welcome it, we support it, we respect it. And then those executives have to lead by example. Again, not all of them, but at least a few of them. Because if you don't have at least a few leaders within your firm who are themselves doing it, then nobody believes anything that anyone's saying. Like, oh, you say it's valued, but you don't do it. You know, oh, you say that it's encouraged, but you don't do it. And if the executives say, well, I'm, I, you know, I want you should do it, but I'm, I'm, I'm too busy. I'm too busy. Well, then who wants, who within that organization wants to sort of raise their hand and go, I'm not busy. You know, like if it's something that is seen that you do, if you're underutilized, if you do with your spare time, then guess what? Everyone's too busy to do it. So it's so, so, so critical that you get that executive sponsorship, explicit permission, and leading by example from the top. Then you need a whole lot of just like internal mechanisms to help people get in the right mindset and develop the right skills. It's not just about, okay, hey, everyone wants you to post three times a week on LinkedIn, because right. if they do it at all, they're going to do a crappy job of it, right? It is so much around mindset. I spent a lot of time both internally with our people and with our customers around the world focused on mindsets, mindsets about buyer centricity and client centricity and talent centricity and how to move beyond being an, an advertising robot, move beyond just saying to like so much of LinkedIn activity is so, so promotional. Like, hey, we won an award. Hey, come to our webinar. Like, hey, look how great we are. And nobody's here for that. Nobody wants that. Nobody engages with that. And then everyone wonders, why do I bother? You got to change the mindset. And how, how can you show up with an honest intent to educate, inspire, and help other people? That's how you become buyer-centric and, and client-centric and talent-centric. And you start to freely share information in a really human way. And that's how you pull the world towards you. So the executive piece is the one thing. The mindset training is the second thing. The third thing is the skill set. Like, okay, now that we're into a good mindset, like, how do I put rubber to the road here? Like, how do I write a good post? How do I choose a good piece of content written by someone else to share? How do I think about my content strategy and the different pieces I'm going to share over the course of a week or a month? How do I, like, how do I get good at writing introductory sentences so that people actually hit the see more? And how do I respond to people when they engage with me? And how do I grow my network? And on and on and on and mm -hmm. on. So executives, then mindsets, then skill sets. And then there's probably a tool set piece. You know, are you going to use a tool like Seismic Live Social to help you with this? Are you going to use something else? Are you a seller who's using Sales Navigator? And if so, how does this dovetail with that? So from executives to mindsets, to skill sets, to tool sets, and then <laughs> repeat, 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 because it's a marathon, not a, not a sprint. That's for sure.
Oh my God. Yeah. So Justin Welsh is one of the first people that, you know, I kind of learned from when it comes to LinkedIn. That's what he said. He said, you have to commit. I think he had originally said like three months. So you have to post three times a week for three months. And then if it's still, if you hate it, okay, at least you tried, but you can't commit by doing it for a week or two. And, you know, the reason why I think a lot of people try and then give up too soon is because they don't see a lot of traction on their posts. And the post that you put up this morning really kind of dives into why for me. So this morning you put up a LinkedIn post and you talked about, you know, your greatest content. And when you say greatest content, the content that really is going to build your professional reputation, that might not be the content that gets the most likes. So a lot of people over-optimize for funny videos, memes, those things are good too, right? Because they can humanize you. They get a lot of traction. They can help put your name and your company name in front of more eyeballs. So those are good, but those are not the ones that are really truly going to help you build your credibility, your thought leadership. You know, so I think that is a reason a lot of these people, executives especially, that are going to try to go onto LinkedIn, they're not going to get a ton of engagement right away because their insights tend to be almost too smart and not everyone can resonate, don't resonate with every single person, right? So what would you say is the right mix when you're coming up with your content calendar, your content strategy? What would be the right mix of the more, you know, insightful, differentiated point of view posts and then the posts that are more built to humanize you, have some fun? Yeah, I think of it like eating a balanced diet. Right? No matter how healthy spinach is, you can't just eat spinach. You, you know, you got to have some different food groups and you also got to have some dessert now and then, right? Keep yourself healthy or keep yourself happy as well as healthy. So I think of it like a balanced diet. And to eat a balanced diet does not mean that every day or every week I eat this perfectly partitioned amount of protein and healthy carbs and healthy fats and allow myself this many desserts. Like that's not eating a balanced diet. It flexes, it flows. But if you find yourself eating a whole lot of junk food and very little healthy food, then you know you're not doing it right. So I think like I give myself permission to flex and flow depending on what I feel like. I don't want to be rigid about it and say, well, you know, you know, I'm going to post six times a week and three of them are going to be this and two. I, I, so that's too rigid for me. So same healthy, you know, mixed diet is I think about it, but it is important that you are thoughtful about that. So I do generally try to have a few times a week, the kind of heavier lift posts, you know, so the way I worded it today and in the post you mentioned, I said, look, your biggest post isn't going to be your most important post. That's the distinction, right? I can post the funny video, the meme, the hot take and get tens of thousands of views and hundreds of engagements. And it's fun. It's great. I love it. But if I get seduced by that and just do that all the time, then I just cease to matter, right? Now I'm a, yeah. trying to be a comedian or something, right? So for me, it's like every week, I want to make sure I got a few pieces that are a heavy lift. They may well be the least, they attract the least visibility and the least engagement, but I know they're the most important because those are the ones people talk about. Those are the ones that I'll be on a sales call and someone will say, Steve, I love that post from last week where you talked about such and such. I sent it to my CEO or I sent it to my team. Nobody says I loved your meme from last week and I sent it to my CEO, right? So we need to disentangle 
virality and easily measurable things from impact, business impact. So if in a typical week I do, let's say, three heavy lift, serious, valuable posts and maybe three lighter and more fun, that's a balanced diet. And it doesn't even mean I have to have three fully formed new ideas every week because I certainly don't. And most people don't either. You know, you can entirely reuse posts from months ago and most people never saw it. And even those that did have forgotten about it. So you can entirely use, reuse them. You can also rewrite and modify and update posts from the past. You can also take big posts that, that make you know, a serious argument with like four sub arguments. And you can break that down into smaller posts other times, or you can group together a bunch of smaller ones into one bigger one. So sometimes people think, oh my God, I can't write like three serious posts in a week. Well, you don't really need to, you kind of do need to at first. So again, like with everything else, right? Getting that flywheel spinning and getting started is hard. And it's also when you're going to get the least feedback, the least engagement. So you do have to slog through that, as you said, but once you kind of get that flywheel spinning, like I'm able to just, you know, look at what were things I was talking about a few months ago and read it and go like, how would I modify that today? Or would I just reuse it or whatever? And if I got lazy and was like, became a reposting machine, I would lose credibility and I would lose audience, but I'm also not going to fail to recycle things from the past because it, it'd be crazy to think, like, I think a lot of people get that wholly wrong. They think, well, I posted that six months ago. I can't use that again. <laughs> Nobody remembers, you know, bring it back. So balanced diet, have some fun, but don't chase virality, you know, really focus on, on impact. I love that. I've seen a lot of people really kind of dumb down their content just because they do just chase those likes. And I have found that sometimes I'll say, oh, this is such a smart post. I put a lot of time into this and it doesn't get as much traction. However, don't be fooled to think that smart posts can't get traction. They absolutely can. Oh, yeah. I had recycled a piece of my newsletter on social and it actually performed really well. I had a diagram, the content sweet spot, which is something that I have found over my you know, 11 years as an editor. Like this is what I found is a sweet spot. And I shared it. And, you know, my mindset has changed over the years as I keep learning, as technology changes, as buyer preferences change, this sweet spot will continue to change and evolve. And I just need to be comfortable with putting it out there and getting feedback. And it actually did respond. It did perform really well. Got a lot of shares, a lot of engagement. Other people started creating content. Blog posts were written with my sweet spot diagram. Social posts were written. And that's an example of it's not a meme. It's not a funny video. It's a, you know, educational post that really did get traction. So they can. They all won't. You have to be okay with that. It can't ruin your day or ruin your mood or ruin your self-esteem. You just have to remember, you know, it's not real life. Just put your thoughts out there and see what sticks. And you should be comfortable testing your ideas, right? Some of them will stick, some won't. And sometimes they will stick and you just won't know it. I had one of my most successful posts ever about LinkedIn was talking about my husband. I shared a picture of me and my husband at a Newport polo match. And I said, you know, my husband is a silent supporter he literally probably stalks my LinkedIn more than anyone else. He always gives me feedback like, oh, I liked your post today, blah, blah, blah. 
he doesn't like my post. He doesn't comment on it. But he is a silent supporter. A lot of people call it a lurker. I don't really like to think of it that way. But you do have a lot of silent supporters. I have found that most of the people that reach out that want to work with me, they've never liked or commented on my content. But they're like, hey, I've been following you online for a long time. I'd love to work together. So I would say keep that in mind too. If you are starting your LinkedIn journey or you're helping your executives and employees start their LinkedIn journeys, I would say that's an important point to make is telling them not to give up because you could be making an impact and not even knowing it because of your silent supporters. Absolutely. You're so right. And I think a lot of people miss that. And I've experienced that firsthand so many times in so many ways. Just last week, I was in San Diego. We had a huge seismic customer event. We had, I think, about 800 of our customers plus a couple hundred of our own people. And I couldn't tell you how many times a customer stopped me in in the halls or at one of the social events. I'm like, Steve, I love your posts. I've been reading them. And, I, and in, in a lot of cases, like they were not familiar names or familiar faces. Like they're not people, some of them absolutely. It's like, oh yes. And thank you for all the engagement. And, you know, but in many, many cases, they have not been engaging, but they've been noticing and they knew who I was and they, yeah. they lit up when they saw me. And that's an amazing thing. And I get the same thing sometimes when I get on sales calls, first call with a new organization and one of the folks on their side is like, Steve, I'm so glad to meet you. I've been reading your stuff. I've been sharing it with my team. And it's like when your credibility walks in the door before you do, that's a beautiful thing. And I'll tell you one other story that, that always yeah. stuck with me. This one's from a few years ago before I was at Seismic. And uh, CMO told me that her CEO was 71 years old and did not use LinkedIn. In fact, didn't even really like to use computers. So she printed off my posts on paper and put them on his desk. <laughs> they ended up becoming a client of mine at the time. I love that. Because he loved what he was reading. So if you're just out here thinking it's all about likes and public comments and stuff, you're missing the bulk of the iceberg. You are building reputation in relationships and credibility and trust in ways that are very hard to see at times and very hard to measure, but they're very real. Yeah, marketers, if you're listening to this and you're having a hard time convincing your executives, send them this episode Tell them to go to Minute Marker, hey, 30 or so minutes in, and we're talking about this, and hopefully this will help you get them on board. So, Steve, I'd love to leave listeners with one really tactical tip that they could implement right away. So let's pretend I'm a content marketer, which I am. Let's pretend I'm a content marketer, and I am tasked with coming up with content ideas that build my company's reputation as an industry thought leader. A lot of us listening don't have to pretend very hard. This is really the mandate today in content marketing. It's all about coming up with content ideas that build your credibility and reputation. What's your advice for me? How do I come up with ideas that are going to help me accomplish that goal and not just blend into the sea of sameness? I think the litmus test for great content is, can I get better at my job or build my business or somehow prosper from reading your content without buying what you sell. That's the litmus test because most content, the answer is no. Most content is just a thin veneer of value and a sales pitch. And if I don't buy your thing, there's nothing to learn. So the best example of, of this, 
a friend and former colleague of mine wrote a book, actually Ghost wrote it for the CEO of his firm. So FreshBooks is, is a company that does invoicing and, and bookkeeping software, largely for solo entrepreneurs, small firms, a lot of creative folks. And my friend Ghost wrote for their CEO this book, and it was a story of a designer who completely revamped his business, went from billing by the hour and instead moved into billing by value. And here's why he did it. Here's how he did it. And here's how it completely transformed his business and led him to be able to make way more money and do way higher value work with way better clients than ever before. And at no point in there did it say, oh, and, and, and then of course he like, you know, used fresh books for his invoicing and everything. They, they had the, the, the credibility not to do that. It was a story that you could read. You could see yourself in this protagonist. You could learn, you could be inspired and you could change your life and change your business for the better. And then who do you think as you now have more clients and you're doing more billing and everything, who are you most likely to turn to for improved software to do that? You know, the people who wrote this book and, and it worked tremendously well for them. And they kept using that book, widely distributing it both in physical copies and digital copies for years and years and years because it worked. And that just so stuck with me. And that's the litmus test. And I challenge myself in all the content that I create, if it's just a thinly veiled sales pitch for what I sell, then it's not good content. It's just advertising copywriting and that has its place, but that's not content in my mind. You know, I want you to be able to read my content and also my company's content, get better at social selling, get better at employee advocacy, get better at social hiring, get better at all of these things, get better at enablement and sales enablement and all these things, get truly better at it without buying from us because then when it is time to buy, we're going to be absolutely in your consideration set and quite possibly we're going to be at the top of your list. And that's how you make better content. And, and I think most content out there fails that litmus test. I love that. You know, I can give an example too. I like to think about content through the lens of like productized services. So for anyone who's listening who might not be familiar with the term productized services, let's say I am selling research reports, which is something that I do help clients create. Okay. So I might have level one DIY. I'm going to have this course that's going to teach you how to create research reports. So I'm going to give it away for free right? So you can learn how to do this thing. I'm offering helpful content and I'm not going to say, use me to help you. I'm just going to teach you how to do this thing, right? Then on the next stage, maybe I do sell this course and it's a little more detailed. And then the next stage, I'm going to say, you can hire me. You're going to do the work, but I'm going to advise you the whole way. And then on the far end of the spectrum, I'm going to do the whole thing for you. You're going to sit back, relax, and at the end, you're going to have a research report. That's kind of like a productized journey. And you can really think of content in this way too. So on the one end where it's completely removed from the product, but still in alignment. So I like to say, you know, in my content sweet spot, I say product 
is one part of that, but I don't want people to misconstrue my advice to mean you have to talk about your product in every piece of content and every podcast episode. I just mean that the things that you're talking about should map back to what your company does. So, for example, the talent optimization example that I talked about earlier, we created an entire guide to help people learn how to do talent optimization. It did not mention the predictive index or our software anyway anywhere because we wanted people to know that even if you have a limited budget, you can even start to do this kind of stuff. You can get a spreadsheet. Here's how you can do it really manually on your own to start building that muscle. And as you get a budget and as you understand how important this is, then maybe you want to reallocate some of those resources into a tool like a talent optimization platform. And you can think about your content in that way too, right? So on the one end, you're, help, you're giving helpful information about social selling. You don't have to use Seismic or you don't have to use a tool to help you do that. Think about like, you know, LinkedIn. You know, I can successfully post content on LinkedIn without using a tool like Buffer. But if posting on LinkedIn is important to me and I've been educated on the benefits and I'm ready to do that, I realize that using a tool will help make me more efficient. It'll just make my life a little bit better. And so that's kind of how I like to think about content like a productized service. It all maps back to the product in some way. Sometimes someone would read your content and never even realize that it mapped back to your product because it's so seamless and so effortless. And it really feels more helpful than salesy. Uh, something that I've said before is less aggressive selling, more aggressive helping. And the more you can maintain that mindset, the better. I love it. In simplest terms, I say, I like to lead to my product rather than lead with my product. Yes. Everything I'm doing Ooh, I love that. That's going to be a quote, Steve. Everything I do, everything I write about, everything I talk about on podcasts, how to get better at the, you know, how to get better as an individual in social selling, how to, you know, we talked a few minutes back about how to orchestrate a, a program within a large enterprise and all the different steps and all the different challenges. All of these things are leading to my product. They, they are establishing myself and my firm as genuinely experts and passionate and very, very knowledgeable in this space and very giving and of insight and information and help, but we're leading to our product rather than leading with. And that is something that so many marketers and salespeople either don't have the confidence to do or don't have the foresight to do or aren't allowed to do, perhaps. You know, I talked to one VP of marketing who said that his CMO, for, this is a huge company, forbids him to post on LinkedIn about anything other than their company. Forbids. Yeah, I'm not surprised. He's a VP and he's forbidden yep. to post about anything. Like that's crazy. wild. That's crazy talk, right? It is. But, but if you, instead of leading with your product or service, if you lead to it, it changes everything. So Steve, we're coming up on time. I have two rapid fire questions for you and then I, I will let you go back on to your busy day. When you think about thought leaders, who comes to mind? What's one person that pops to your mind? Well, we already talked about Chris Walker. We talked about Ashley Foss at Atlassian. They're both great. I'm going to say Perry Hedrick and Samantha McKenna. I know you asked for one, but I feel compelled to give two. Perry is teaching us how to be way better at PR. I love his... He coined the phrase of ungate your mind, right? Which is just the perfect way of talking about how you <laughs> how you give it away and then the world beats a path to your 
your door. He's teaching us that PR, public relations, is so much more than press releases. It's so much more than what reporters do you know? It is a strategic function within the firm. And, and I learn a ton from Perry and Samantha McKenna, all the same accolades, but focused on enterprise selling. I mean, her posts are brilliant and she goes so far beyond posts as does Perry. Get out there and engage with other people, right? It's not a post and ghost mindset. It's not a, I'm going to preach to the world and walk away. Sam is out there not only sharing amazingly insightful and valuable content about selling, but she's also joining in conversations all over the place. So I have massive respect for both of them. And I learn something from each of them 100% every week. And sometimes it's every day. Yeah, Perry and Sam are great. I will add links to their profiles for any listeners that want to come on the website and read the show notes. I'm also going to add links, uh, Steve, to your profile, uh, Seismic website. But for anyone listening, where can they follow you if they'd like to stay in touch? Well, probably no surprise at this point. LinkedIn is my jam. Uh, you can find me, Steve Watt from Seismic, and you can follow, you can send a connection request, whatever you prefer. I do write about this stuff almost every day, sometimes serious stuff. Sometimes I just have a little fun. Well, thank you so much for your time, Steve. This has been a really awesome conversation and I've really enjoyed it. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, Aaron. Been a real pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Notorious Thought Leader. If you're looking for more stories from marketers who are generating demand from thought leadership, then visit us at motionagency.io slash notorious. See you next time.